Douglas Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Episode 8, 1884 in England, Diminishing Returns. The 1884 side was the fourth time in six years that an Australian team would visit England. The team was once again an experienced one, with Murdoch, Bannerman, Blackham, Boyle and Spotheth on their fourth trips, whilst Bonner, McDonnell, Palmer, Midwinter and Giffen had all had previous touring experience. New to the side were batsman Harry Tupscott and Legspin and William Cooper, whilst George Alexander was player-manager, having been a tourist in 1880. However, unlike the previous tours, there was no Colonial Association support behind this tour. The players had organised themselves and saw it primarily as a money-making exercise. This was reflected in only 12 players being chosen for the tour, less than the 1882 side's 13, meaning that shares of the profits will be split between fewer players, increasing the money for each, but also meaning a greater workload. This would cause problems as the tour progressed. Of the two new players, Cooper was the one that had the biggest hopes pinned on him. He had played one test against Shoreside in 1881-82, taking nine wickets in the Australian seven-wicket win of the first test of that tour, but hadn't played since. A Victorian who had only taken up cricket as a 27-year-old, he had bamboozled state sides with a large amount of tourney generated, and it was expected that the English would have great difficulty in playing him, providing even more depth to a strong bowling lineup of Swatheth, Palmer, Giffen and Boyle. However, on the trip over, he injured his spinning finger and, despite surgery, was unable to take a meaningful part in the tour, only playing in six of the matches and none of the tests. This would mean that the other 11 players would have to play the majority of games without a rest, although Alexander would fill in some matches. It also delayed the English nightmare with Victorian leg spinners by over a century. The tourists arrived in England at the end of April. To heighten the money-making opportunities, they would cram 32 matches into five months, with their last game taking place in the middle of September. The majority of the matches were against the county sides, who would offer the Australians 50% of the gate takings to get them to play. Whilst this was a high amount, it was offset by the popularity of the Australians, who were almost guaranteed to draw a large crowd and still make the local county a profit. It will be the issue of gate takings, however, that will drive a wedge between the tourists and the English as the tour progressed. The first match of the tour was played against Lord Sheffield's 11. The Lord had put together a strong side, including George Juliet, Arthur Shrewsbury, Alfred Shaw, as well as WG Grace as captain. However, despite being fairly fresh off the boat, the Australians dispatched them by an innings, powering Giffen with the only bowlers required, each taking 10 wickets for the match, whilst Bannerman outscored the English first innings with his own 94. This match would establish a tradition that would last for over a century, where Australian touring sides would first match would be against Lord Sheffield's 11. Half the tour matches will be played before the first test in July, mainly in the north of England, although they would return to London for some matches against Surrey and the MCC. At Lords, the MCC got some revenge for the famous match from 1878, defeating the Australians by an innings. Centuries to Grace, Alan Steele and William Barnes saw the home side post 481, whilst the Australians posted two scores in the 180s. Grace demonstrated his all-round ability by adding seven wickets for the match, as well as his 100. In the next match, the Australians relieved somewhat their efforts from that famous match by defeating an English 11 in a day by four wickets. Spotheth took 14 wickets for the match, including an astounding 7 for 3 in 35 balls in the second innings. Overall, of the 16 matches played prior to the first test, the Australians had won 10 and only lost 4. The opening test was the first to be played in England outside of London, with Old Trafford in Manchester being selected to host. With only 11 fit players to choose from, the Australians had little difficulty selecting their side. There was controversy for the English, however. The Home Association, in this case Lancashire, had the responsibility for picking the side. The team would have a strong Lancashire flavour, with Monkey Hornby, Dick Barlow, Alan Steele and wicketkeeper Dick Piling all local players. They also chose to select John Crossland, one of the fastest bowlers in England and another Lancashire local. However, Crossland had a reputation as a chucker and Lord Harris, the most important man in English cricket, refused to play on account of this. Ironically, Crossland would end up being 12th man and would never play Test cricket. The Lancashire players were joined by titans of the English game, including W.G. Grace, Arthur Shrewsbury and George Ulliott, in what was hoped would be an excellent contest. 
Unfortunately for the local fans, the weather would have other ideas. The entirety of the first day was washed out. With the test only being scheduled over three days, this would leave little time for a result. Despite the rain, the English captain Monkey Hornby won the toss and chose to bat, opening with himself and WG Grace. The captain would regret this choice, however, as he was stumped in ball second over for a duck. Elliot joined Grace and the two took the score to 13, before Grace offered a simple chance to Palmer off Boyle, who accepted it comfortably. A rain delay then stopped play for 15 minutes and, upon the return, Elliot was immediately bowled by Spotheth, without a run being added to the score. Local kicker of Steele then joined with Shrewsbury to develop a partnership, with Shrewsbury hitting multiple boundaries. Steele matched him with a fierce leg-side boundary off Spotheth, but was called by Midwinter trying to repeat the stroke, leaving English at 4 for 45. Shrewsbury was handling conditions expertly, and whilst he was at the crease, the English had a chance of posting a decent score. He joined with Bunny Lucas to develop another partnership, hitting Boyle for another boundary to bring up the team 50 after only 55 minutes of play. The scoring rate slowed thereafter, with the total proceeding only by singles, with Boyle eventually being replaced by Palmer. Shrewsbury then picked up the scoring, cutting a ball off Palmer through Spotter's legs for four. Boyle was brought back to replace Palmer, and soon struck, getting a quick leg break past Shrewsbury's outside edge to cannon into the stumps. The Nottinghamshire batsman had made 43 runs, the top score of the innings. On the next ball, the new batsman Barnes patted a ball tamely back to the bowler to be out for a golden duck on the last ball before lunch. The sun came out during lunch, causing the wicket to dry at a quicker rate, making it even more difficult for batting. Lucas took a single off the first ball from Spotheth, leaving the new batsman O'Brien to face the demon. He could only last one ball as his stumps were splayed everywhere. Barlow held out with Lucas for 10 overs, but when he was dismissed, the end came quickly, with the innings closing at 93. Lucas being undefeated on 15. Boyle had finished with 6-42, his maiden five-wicket haul, while Spotheth claimed the other four. The Australian innings commenced at 3.10 in the afternoon, with Bannerman opening with McDonnell. Bannerman hit a boundary in the sixth over off Pete, but was then plum ABW to Ulya in the next over, out for six with a score on 10. This brought the captain Murdoch to the crease, and the two batsmen progressed the score with numerous boundaries, although Murdoch was dropped by the wicket off Pete. The bowlers were replaced with Barlow and Steele, but without success, as consistent boundaries saw the 50 come up in just over an hour of play. Soon after, though, McDonald nicked a ball from Steele through to the keeper, dismissed for 36. Given joined his skipper and continued the high rate of scoring, starting strong with an off-drive for four. Murdoch offered another chance at point, but was then taken at the same position soon after, out for 28. Giffen fell soon after, leaving the Australians at 4 for 90. Midwinter then made use of his extensive knowledge of local conditions from years of playing in England, playing the bowling comfortably. He stood tall as wickets continually fell at the other end. Bonner hit a ball into the crowd off Pete, but trod on his stumps next ball, becoming the first player dismissed hit wicket in a test match. Blackham was LBW to steal for 8, whilst Tup Scott was dismissed by the doctor for 12 in the last over of the day's play. Midwinter was undefeated on 29, as the Australians' score stood at 7 for 141, a lead of 48. With only one day left, the Australians were seemingly the only side who could force a result. The rain stayed away for the commencement of the final day, with Palmer joining Midwinter at the crease. The English bowlers kept the score from accelerating too quickly and created a chance where Midwinter left his crease, only for the keeper piling to miss the stumping opportunity. Over 100 balls in the morning passed with only 8 runs scored before Midwinter started to attack, lifting Pete over cover for a boundary, but was soon after caught at point by Grace off Elliott for 37, the top score of the innings. Spotheth came and went for 13, whilst Ball was last man out, bowled by Ulliott for 4, leaving Palmer 14 not out. The Australian innings had ended on 182, a lead of 95, but they bowed for 80 minutes with only 41 runs, leaving only a few hours to try and win the game. The English opened with Grace and Lucas, whilst the heroes of the first innings, Boyle and Spotheth, commenced with the ball. Tight bowling brought about a chance from Lucas off Spotheth, but a blacker was unable to take a difficult catch. This miss allowed the English to make it to lunch without loss on a total of 18. Following the resumption of play, Giffen replaced Boyle and managed to trouble the doctor with his deliveries that behaved badly off the wicket, 
Graves would survive, though, and make his way to 31, dominating the opening partnership, until Palmer's brought on and managed to get Graves to play a ball onto his stumps, the first wicket falling the score on 41. Another change of bowling brought a further wicket, with Ulliot caught for one off the bowling of Boyle. The English were only 51 runs behind with eight wickets in hand, but were starting to look wobbly. Next man in Shrewsbury, however, continues excellent form from the first innings, denting the ability of the Australians to get a run on. Lucas, who only scored six to this stage, also started to open up, hitting Palmer to the boundary to bring up the 50. Shrewsbury also hit a couple of boundaries, leading to Murdoch to rotate his bowls trying to achieve a breakthrough. This finally came with a score on 70, with Giffen clean bowling Lucas for 24. Steele made his way to the wicket and in partnership with Shrewsbury managed to erase the deficit by 4.30 in the afternoon. Steele brought up the 100 with a straight drive for 4, but soon after Shrewsbury was clean bowled by Palmer for 25. Bonner was then brought on and managed to claim his first test wicket, having Steele caught behind by Blackham. The English were 5 for 106, only 11 runs ahead. This soon became 6 for 114 when Palmer again clean bowled a batsman, this time Barnes. A small hint of an Australian win remained if they could remove the last batsman quickly. Barlow was joined at the wicket by O'Brien, who was given not out of a very strong LBW shout, whilst Barlow was nearly caught at point. O'Brien tried his way out of trouble and was lucky not to be out multiple times. He was finally dismissed for 20 valuable runs. Hornby was then stumped for four off the bowling of Palmer, whilst Piling was bowled by Swapoth, leading the English at nine for 154. However, at this stage, with the wind looking ever more unlikely, the Australians dropped their standards, letting multiple extras through, allowing the English to reach the close of play at 9 for 180, leaving the match as a draw. Palmer finished with four wickets, while Spothith had two. The Australians had been on top for most of the tests, but had been unable to capitalise, although the loss of the first day's play had the biggest impact on the overall result. The Australians then made their way to London for what was to be the first test match at Lord's. With Crossland no longer part of the squad, Lord Harris returned to captain, joined also by Walter Reid, Alfred Littleton and debutant Stanley Christofferson, with O'Brien, Barnes, Piling and Hornby making way. Australia was unchanged due to the injuries suffered by Cooper. Australia won the toss and chose to bat, opening with McDonnell and Bannerman. 20,000 fans were in attendance, despite the blustery weather, to witness Pete deliver the first over. Almost immediately, the Englishman had a wicket, bowling McDonald for a second ball duck. The captain arrived to the crease and joined Bannerman in a cautious partnership. The English bowling allowed for little scoring, although they missed a simple chance off Murdoch. The score progressed to 25 before Bannerman missed a straight one from Pete, becoming the second wicket to fall. Giffen came to the crease and soon lost his captain, who was struck leg before the wicket for 10, again off Pete. Midwinter soon became the Englishman's fourth victim as he missed an attempted drive and was bowled. The score was 4 for 46 as the big striking Bonner arrived at the crease with the Australians in desperate need of a partnership. Kiffin hit the next ball he faced for 4 to bring up the 50, and the score began ticking over more quickly, although Bonner was uncharacteristically restrained, working in ones and twos rather than the boundaries he was known for. When the score reached 85, the debutant Christofferson arrived at the crease, and Bonner couldn't help himself, a team to hit him into the crowd, but only managed him to sky the ball to grace a point, out for 25. Blackham soon after ran himself out for the second duck of the innings, leaving the Australians at 6 for 93. This brought Scott to the crease and, in partnership with Giffen, who raised his personal 50, managed to take the Australians to lunch as drizzle began to fall. The Australians had made it to 117, but were still well short of a competitive score having chosen to bat. Following the resumption of play, Scott and Giffen both hit boundaries on playing expansive cricket until Pete struck again for his fifth of the innings, bowling Giffen for a well-made 63. This didn't stop Scott, who continued to play aggressively, causing Lord Harris to turn to WG Grace, who managed to put a lid on the scoring. The pressure worked as Palmer and Spothoff were dismissed within five runs of each other, leaving the Australians at 9 for 160 with only Boyle left to partner Scott, who was demonstrating why he was selected for the tour. He hit multiple boundaries as the bowlers were rotated looking for a breakthrough, but with no luck. Boyle hit one ball so hard that WG Grace, who had fielded the ball, had to go off the field. He was replaced by the Australian captain, who graciously offered to subfield. 
The 200 runs the 50 partnership were both raised in quick time as Harris turned to steal to provide a breakthrough. Scott hit the second ball of his second over to point, where the catch was accepted by his own captain, ending the Australian innings at 229. Scott had made a chance of 75, whilst Boyle was not out with a plucky 26. Peter finished with the excellent figures of 6 for 85. There was still an hour and a half left in the day's play as the English innings commenced. The English opened with Lucas and Grace and scored freely, with both batsmen hitting boundaries, bringing up 37 at a run a minute, before Palmer managed to have WG caught brilliantly at slip by Bonner for 14. New batsman Shrewsbury then survived a leg before shout off the same bowler. The scoring rate slowed as the batsmen found it difficult to get the ball through the field. This pressure brought about another breakthrough, with Lucas being out the same way as his opening partner. Before the new batsman Ulyat could take his guard, a shower interrupted play, causing the players to scurry back to the pavilion. After 10 minutes they were able to return, and the stump drew close boil was brought on to replace Palmer, was able to tempt Shrewsbury from his crease to be stumped by Blackham for 27, having taken the English to score to 90. Stumps were then drawn, with the English still trailing by 139 with 7 wickets in hand. The match was well balanced, was going to take more good bowling from the Australians such as Palmer to create an Australian lead. George Eugene Palmer, known as Joey, was born on the 22nd of February 1859 in the New South Wales town of Marwalla on the Murray River. Bowling fast medium cutters and off-spinners, Palmer made an immediate splash on his first-class debut, taking match figures of 9 for 94 in a match for New South Wales against the touring English led by Lord Harris. It was this performance that saw him selected for the 1880 tour, with his debut coming in the inaugural test in England. While Spotheth generated the headlines for Australia, Palmer was only slightly behind as the premier Australian bowler and often starred, twice taking seven wickets in the innings against the English at home in both 1882 and 1883. He was a consistent tourist to England, with the current tour being his third, having also toured in 1882, where he took 100 wickets in the first-class matches, was injured just before the Test match, where the myth of the Ashes was born. He was back in 1884 to make amends for missing that famous Test. Play resumed the following day at 11.30, and again, the lure of excellent cricket drew a massive crowd, another 20,000 being recorded. Steele was a new batsman and joined Ulliott in developing a partnership, building his score onto 120 before Palmer struck again, walking Ulliott for 32. Spotheth soon after then knocked the middle stump of the English captain out of the ground to leave the English at 5 for 135. Steele, however, was batting superbly, hitting numerous boundaries and handing all the bowlers with ease. He found able support from Barlow, who continued to turn the strike over. Steele brought up his 50 before the English 200 was raised at 1.35 in the afternoon. Barlow survived an appeal for court behind, and the two bats managed to proceed until lunch was taken, having passed his train's first innings score and moved on to 231. Steele was on 77 not out and looking likely to reach his second test century. Upon resumption, Bonner was tried first up. His first ball was turned for two by Barlow, but he guided the second ball to slip to be out for 38. The partnership had raised 98 runs and put England in the box seat. Steele then partnered with Reid and continued on, bringing up his century in just over three hours of batting, well received by the large crowd. Palmer returned to the crease and managed to bowl Reid for 12, his fourth wicket of the innings, but Littleton then combined with Steele to take the lead to over 100. The two put on 75 runs before Palmer managed to spin one past Littleton's defences to have him bowl for 31. Steele, left with the last two wickets, decided to hit out. He was missed by McDonnell at long off, taking his score up to 148. With 150 inside, he was bowled next ball, with Palmer finally getting his man. His innings had lasted for almost four hours and included 13 boundaries, taking the game well away from the Australians. Some late hitting from Christofferson saw the score race to 379 before Spotheth claimed the final wicket. Palmer finished with 6-111 off 75 overs, but a lack bowling support from the other end to capitalise on his incisiveness. Trailing by an even 150, the Australians opened with McDonnell and Bannerman. They started comfortably, with McDonnell doing the bulk of the scoring, till the century maker Steele was brought on to bowl. To capitalise on his great day, he took the first wicket, bowling McDonald for 20 with a score on 33. 
Murdoch arrived and helped take the score quickly to 50 before the bowlers tightened the screws, with the pressure eventually seeing Murdoch dismissed, caught at forward short leg for 17. Whilst Bannerman was out, caught and bowled for 27 soon after, with both falling to Ulliot. Giffen and Bonner had the job of seeing the Australians through the stumps. However, in the last over of the day, Bonner slapped a straight dive back down the pitch, only to be brilliantly caught and bowled by Ulliot, his third of the evening. The Australians ended the day at four down for 73, still 77 runs short of making England bat again. The Australians had a major uphill battle on a wearing pitch ahead of them as Scott joined Giffen at the wicket. Scott got off to a good start, scoring 10 in as many minutes, but Giffen was then dismissed by Ulliot with the score at 83. Ulliot then cleaned bowled Bimbinter and managed to cause the retirement of Blackham, who was badly hit on his hand. The Australians were now effectively 7 for 94. Each of Palmer, Spothers and Ball managed to make it double figures, but each time a partnership with Scott was developing, they would lose their wickets, with Scott being undefeated on 31 when the innings ended at 145. England won by an innings and five runs, whilst Ulliot, the second inning star, recording the exceptional figures of 7 for 36, his test best. With only one test left and leading by 1-0, England had already retained the Ashes won by Ivor Bly's team back in 1883. The Australians still had an opportunity to level the series, with the third test commencing two and a half weeks later at the Oval. In the lead-up to that test, it was revealed in the local London papers that, unlike in other matches that tour, the Australians have received the entire proceeds of the Lord's Test, well over £1,000. This had been agreed beforehand to cover the costs, but on a tour where the majority of the gate was split evenly between the tourists and the home side, this called ructions between the Australian and English cricketers. This was received particularly poorly by the English professional players, who relied on payments from cricket for a living. The Australians had been presenting themselves as an amateur operation, but the cold hard facts suggested they were ruthless in extracting every last dollar that they could from the tour. This attitude would cause issues down the road. On a blazing hot day, the Australian captain won the toss and chose to bat at the Oval. Australia was unchanged whilst England had two changes, with Billy Barnes and William Scotton replacing Lucas and Christofferson. Once again, Bannerman and McDonnell opened the batting. Both batsmen opened their accounts with boundaries, but in the fourth over, Bannerman was out, caught a point off the bowling of Pete with a score of 15. This brought Murdoch to the crease. Though cautious at first, the scoring began to increase at a rapid rate. 50 runs came up after only 40 minutes of play, with the 100 being raised 90 minutes into the innings. McDonald was particularly severe, taking 9 off 1 peat over. The English bowlers were rotated without success, and 7 had been tried before the lunch was called, with the Australians dominant on 1 for 130. After three maidens following the lunch break, McDonald unleashed numerous boundary hits, racing towards his second test century, which he brought up at the stroke of three to warm applause from the crowd. Soon after though, Ulliot claimed with a low catch at slip off peat. He made 103 with 14 boundaries, and left Australia in a strong position at 2 for 158. Murdoch, who had just survived a difficult chance to the keeper, was joined by Scott. After a couple of quiet overs, Scott picked up where McDonald had left off, hitting multiple boundaries and even picking up a five when an errant throw off a kick single went to the boundary. The 200 was achieved at just before four o'clock and Lord Harris had to turn to himself to try to gain a breakthrough, to no avail as his first over was taken for seven. Murdoch raised his second test century just before five in the afternoon. Scott, who had passed 50 shortly before, was missed by Lord Harris at long off, although the chance was considered a difficult one. 300 came and went as the English even turned to the wicketkeeper Littleton to try and break the partnership, bowling in lob style. With stumps approaching, Scott hit WG Grace the three to bring up his own century, his first in tests. As the two undefeated batsmen left the field, the Australians were in an imperious position at two for 363. The following day was also hot, but that didn't deter the 15,000 strong crowd. Merrick and Scott resumed their innings, but not long after were finally separated with Scott out for 102, caught off the bowling of Barnes. He had combined with Murdoch for a 207-run stand, the first double century stand in tests. This brought Given to the crease, and after a dozen overs of watchful batting, he began to open up. The 400 was raised after an hour of batting, whilst Murdoch brought about his second score of above 150 in tests. 
Soon after, he was missed by Barlow at third man, although the partnership with Giffen was soon broken as the South Australian was caught at Silly Mid-On for 32. Next man, Bonnet, was unable to get going, being dismissed for eight on the stroke of lunch, with the score now five for 454. The Australian captain had gone to lunch at 190 and, joined by Midwinter, quickly brought up the first double century in test matches with one of his trademark cuts of four. Shortly after, his tremendous knock was finally concluded at 211, being well caught at slip. His innings had lasted for over eight hours over the best part of two days and included 24 boundaries. With Blackham joining him, Midwinter continued the punishment of the bowling, with the 500 being raised with no declaration in sight. Finally, when 532 was on the board, the English went back to the lobs of their wicketkeeper. With Grace taking the gloves, Littleton ran through the remaining four wickets for only 19 runs, ending the Australian innings at a mammoth 551. It had taken the best part of two days to construct, however, and would take an excellent bowling effort to gain the victory required to draw the series. The English commenced the innings with Grace and Scotland opening and batting. Surprisingly, the Australians opened with Bonner. Grace took a liking to this and immediately hit into the leg boundary for four. With Palmer bowling tidily at the other end, Lingus scored more freely off Bonner, with the doctor hitting consecutive boundaries to take the score onto 32. However, in the following over, Grace was run out, bringing Barnes to the wicket to join Scotland. The two progressed the score with ease, bringing up the 50 after only 40 minutes of batting. This saw Spothers replace Bonner, who managed to have Barnes caught low down at third man by midwinter for 19. Shrewsby came to the wicket and saw out the rest of the day as England ended with 2 for 71, with Scotland not out 21. A dull day greeted the 10,000 fans who turned up for the final day of the match. Within a couple of overs of the commencement of play, Shrewsby was already back in the pavilion, being caught by the keeper off midwinter. The century maker from the previous match, Steele, joined Scotland at the wicket, and he picked up where he had left off, hitting Spoffer for multiple boundaries. The 100 was raised before a switch to Palmer and Boyle saw the scoring dry up. This eventually brought about the downfall of Steele, who had finally broken the shackles of the boundary before being LBW the next ball to Palmer, the score now 4 for 120. Elliot made 10 before being dismissed by Palmer, and the next batsman Barlow was out first ball. Harrison Scotton took the score onto 160 before the England captain was another LBW victim of Palmer's. Keeper Littleton joined Scotton, who managed to bring up a chanceless 50 just prior to the lunch break. Upon their return, the two scored eight singles before Spothers breached the defences of Littleton. This left the English at a precarious 8 for 181, still trailing by 370, with the majority of the day's play left for the Australians to try and snatch a series-tying victory. Fortunately for England, their number 10, Walter Reid, was no slouch with the bat. He had a first-class average of over 30, excellent for the day, and decided the best form of defence was attack. With Scotland immovable at the other end, Reid took to the bowling, hitting multiple boundaries, including powerful drives off Palmer. He survived an LBW shout and he continued his boundary-hitting ways, bringing up his own 50 by 4 o'clock in the afternoon. The Australians cycled through their bowlers without luck as the strain of a long tour began to show in the increasingly looser bowling. The 100 partnership was brought up, followed shortly after by the Team 300. More importantly, time was being taken out of the game, with the Australians' chance of forcing a victory almost gone. Reid's hitting was so vicious that he went past his partner's score, even though Scott had already been over 50 at the time Reid joined him at the crease. The Australians turned to their seventh bowler, Scott, and Reid took advantage to hit him to long off for four, bringing up his century in just under two hours. Shortly after, though, Scotland's five-and-a-half-hour innings was ended when he was caught at mid-off for 90. He had stood tall as the other batsmen fell around him and provided the security that Reid needed at the other end to go on his blistering rampage. The final partnership put on another 15 runs before Ball finally dismissed Reid, bowling him for 117. This had come in 155 balls and included 24s and had all but guaranteed a draw. The English innings had ended at 346, still behind the follow-on mark, with only an hour of play remaining. Barlow and Littleton commenced the innings with the opening partnership of 22 before Littleton was bowled by Boyle. 
Shrewsbury came to the crease and played a delightful little cameo, demonstrating why he was one of the highest rated batsmen in England, hitting eight fours in his 37 off only 33 balls before he was caught by Scott off Giffen. Lord Harris joined Barlow and the two saw England safely through to close shortly after, with the match ending with the English on two for 85. England maintained the supremacy over Australia and won by Ivor Bly on the previous tour to Australia, although it would be fair to say that Australia had the stronger performances in both the drawn tests. Without rain washing out the first day in Manchester, there was a good chance that Australia would have drawn the series. This match ended up being Lord Harris's last appearance as a test player for England. He would remain a key figure behind the scenes for many years to come, however, and would later play a key role in the establishment of the Imperial Cricket Conference, the forerunner of today's International Cricket Council. Australians still had another month of their tour to go and were quite successful, winning five of the remaining seven matches. Across the entirety of the tour, Spotheth had taken a mammoth 207 wickets, the most by any bowler in England that season, whilst Palmer also claimed over 100. Murdoch had scored 1,381 runs, second only to Lord Harris's 1,417, and 20 more than W.G. Grace, whilst McDonnell, Bonner and Giffen also crossed the 1,000-run mark. Despite the result of the test matches, overall the tour was a success for the Australians, winning 18 of the 32 matches played. The tour was also a financially rewarding one, with the popular Australians drawing high crowds and thus high gate receipts, leading to each player profiting handsomely from the venture. However, the clear financial nature of the tour had probably contributed to the Test Series loss, as, given that once Cooper was injured, there was no one able to play the rest of the frontline bowlers, with the tour organisers more concerned about maximising their profits by not having more players on the tour. It would also sow the seeds for future discord. There was discontent in the local English press regarding how focused the Australians were on money and the scandal of the Australians taking all the gate from the Lord's Test causing resentment by English professional players who were missing out on a share of the profits made from these matches. The private nature of the tour also annoyed local Melbourne and Sydney cricket organisations, leading to a situation in the following Australian summer where entirely different teams would play from one Test match to the next. This distrust between the leading players and the Australian associations would result in a decline in the fortunes of Australian cricket. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.